Welcome back to the Jambase podcast. I'm Andy Kahn, and Jambase is the partner of Osiris Media, the podcast network for music. Coming up on this episode is my interview with singer-songwriter Neil Francis, who recently released his fantastic new album, In Plain Sight. We'll hear my interview with Neil in just a moment. So we're back after taking last week off to spend some time with family and friends, and we hope you had a safe and happy holiday as well. With Thanksgiving behind us, the holiday season is in full swing, and the Jambase Holiday Buying Guide has the perfect gift options for the music lover in your life. The Jambase Holiday Buying Guide features a bunch of Jambase's partners, and you might be familiar with some of them from previous podcast sponsorships. Check out the Jambase Holiday Guide for offerings and deals from the likes of Psychedelic Art Exchange, Section 119, Vibes Hi-Fi Earplugs, Casher Trade, Merge Records, Mandolin, Snug Pups, Grateful Fred, and Polar Tech, who also have their own Festival Goers Buying Guide on Jambase as well. Those are just a few of the options listed on our buying guide. Visit Jambase to see the full list and find just the right gift to give this holiday season. While you're visiting Jambase, be sure your profile is up to date and tracking all of your favorite bands and venues so you won't miss when new shows get added. It's not too late to go see live music on New Year's Eve. Click the New Year's tab when you're searching on Jambase for concerts to see who you can ring in 2022 with. All right, now let's get to my interview with Neil Francis. This is not only Neil's second time on the Jambase podcast, it's his second appearance just this year. I spoke to Neil back in April about his cover of Dog Stole Things for the Jambase Fish Covers compilation album, Clusterflies. As he told me back then, Neil recorded the cover shortly after completing work on what became In Plain Sight, all of which was done at a studio he built in the parsonage of St. Peter's United Church of Christ in Chicago. Neil told me about his history of working at the church, which led to living at the parsonage for what became a year and a half stay. With a penchant for analog recording, Neil stayed true to form on the new album and described acquiring a tape recorder that once belonged to late former Wilco member Jay Bennett for use during the sessions. Neil talked about the impact recording on analog had on the songs and recalled an instance when an entire day's worth of recording was accidentally erased. We also talked about how Neil achieved the cohesive and constant vibe throughout the nine-track album, and he told me about the title track, In Plain Sight, which was cut from the album in a fashion similar to Led Zeppelin's Houses of the Holy. Neil recounted working with Grammy Award winner Dave Fridman, who mixed In Plain Sight, and whose previous credits include The Flaming Lips, Spoon, Tame Impala, and many others. Neil told me about drawing from his personal experiences for the lyrics to his songs, and how he hopes to be able to tap into the emotions of those experiences each time he performs them live. Neil was asked about the guests on the album, which included Derek Trucks, as well as backing vocalist Carlisle, and the trio of Allie Bradford, Tremaine Parker, and Brandon Lampke. So here's Neil Francis's return to the Jam Bass Podcast, which we'll lead into with a bit of the In Plain Sight single, Problems. Right, right now. Lord, 
I'm here with Neil Francis. We're going to talk about his new album, In Plain Sight, which comes out on ATO Records on November 5th. Neil, thanks for coming back to the Jam Bass Podcast. It's my pleasure to be here, Andy. Thanks for having me. So yeah, man. So the last time we talked, we were just saying it seemed like forever ago, but it was actually just back in April. Um, mm-hmm. and, and and when we were talking then, it was it was because you had recorded a cover of Dog Stole Things for our Clusterflies Fish Covers Companion compila- or compilation. Um, but while we were talking, you were you you mentioned that you recorded that track right after having finished recording a new album, um, mm-hmm. which which I I, I figured. Uh, it must have been in plain sight. Is that is that right? That's correct. And so when we were talking then too, you were at the the church that you recorded Dog Stole Things, but you also had mentioned that you 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 had recorded that track right after having finished it. So you kind of rolled right it right from the the album sessions into that session. So. so you explained a little bit the layout of the church, and I want you to do that in a minute. But first, can you just explain sort of? The church itself and your affiliation with it and how you came to be, uh, I mean, you, you lived there for a little bit, right? Yeah, I lived there for like 20 months. I uh, was the music minister, which basically is a grand title for accompanist. Uh, I played piano at their services for like three years. Um, and uh, prior to to living in the parsonage, which is typically the pastor's residence, but mm-hmm. I, uh, I was in a, you know, very, um, just stressful, uh, position of having to move out of my apartment in short order mm-hmm. and thought to ask the church if I could, uh, take up temporary residence. I didn't imagine staying there for 20 months, but, um, they so agreed. how how did you first get that that gig as the what you call it the music minister is that right? Yeah, so I was um, my friend Dom Frigo uh, was you know their music minister for four years, and then he moved to New York City and was like, hey, you should take this gig. Um, and I actually okay. was was sort of reluctant to do so just because I knew it would require a lot of reading, which I wasn't comfortable with at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was like, he encouraged me to do it. And, uh, I'm really grateful for that. Cause I did, I did learn how to read and it was really good for my, uh, musicianship. Yeah. I'm sure it helped hone your chops quite a bit. Had you had any experience doing anything like that prior to that? Um, yeah, actually I played growing up in the Catholic church, um, where I attended school. Oh, okay but I learned all that music by ear, you know, cause I would go to mass every Sunday. So I knew all the songs. Yeah. And so it was like, it was very easy for me to just, you know, play from memory. Yeah, there, there's something about those songs that they, they seem to be easily memorized. I mean, I, I, I hear the song, I grew up Catholic too. And you hear some of those songs in like instant melody, you know, all the lyrics again, and it can be decades since I've heard it before. Fucking Eagle's wings, man. You know, yeah, the, no doubt. The, raise me up, hits. man. Raise me yeah. up. <laughs> oh God. I mean, like, yeah, they're pretty sappy. Uh, like the, the church I was at was a Protestant church and actually their hymnal was a lot. There was a lot more like Bach and, um, Oh wow. Real just like, some of that music is really intricate and beautiful um, in comparison to some of the stuff 
from the Catholic tradition, which is, is fine. But, um, I feel like, man, the Lutherans really. <laughs> so, so it's St. St. Peter's United Church of Christ in Chicago, right? That's, that's yeah, that where was what it, yeah, it was like a, um, the denomination is like a, just a, a sect of Protestantism, mm-hmm. very similar to Lutheran or Presbyterian. And, and you're not living there now, right? No, no. Um, the church dissolved actually in July, there were only a handful of congregants left and they sold the church off and now yeah. it's a community theater. And, and had anybody been living in the parsonage before or, or like recently before you had moved in? The last residents were, uh, there was like a, um, nursing program that oh, had okay. students living there and they did classes like in the facility of the rest of the church. And then like the students were living in the parsonage. I don't, you know, I don't remember yeah. any of that, but I was the first in a while to live there. Gotcha. And, and when you moved in, you, did you immediately set up recording equipment? Did you, was it kind of automatically conceived of as a recording space? Uh, that was something that I like hoped for from the beginning, Okay, but it, it took a long time to get that set up. And honestly, it was really the pandemic that, um, was the, inst- that instigated that. Uh, the time that, <laughs> oh, right. Well, yeah. Having the time and having the just, yeah. I mean, the necessity of having mm-hmm. something to work on. So you described it a little bit last time when we talked, but kind of, can you walk me through the layout of the the space that you were in and how you, how you ended up setting it up as a recording studio? Yeah. The um, Parsonage was a building, uh, it was designed in 1948. It was made to look like it was probably from the 1800s, but um, it was a brick uh two-story house, three bedrooms with uh, a finished basement. And we had the control room set up in the living room, dining room space. Um, And then we had a snake, a 16-channel snake running through the laundry chute in the kitchen down to the uh, basement, like would have been the rec room. It was like a wood-paneled 70s style. Oh, wow. classic like George Foreman or uh, yeah, Eric Foreman basement. Um, So like uh, that's where we had the live tracking room. Um, Initially I had my whole studio rig down there for like the demo studio. Um, And then we of course brought in a lot of like rack mounted equipment and another tape machine or two for the uh, finishing of the, for the proper recording session. So. And and so this was all done earlier this year, like at the beginning of 2021? Is that- no, uh, the, the first session was in September, 2019. And I actually got like deathly ill the first day of tracking and we had to reschedule for October. And so we, in mid October, we did the band tracking and then we did a dub session, uh, first dub session in December and then a, a subsequent dub session um, now I forget, but we did 21 days of proper tracking. And then okay. there was of course the mixing phase, which was like, I think 12 days. 
I, I wanted to ask you about the the mixing. Um, there's there's definitely a cohesive sound. There's the there's an aesthetic to to, to there's a vibe to the album, and I imagine that largely or has an impact from how the, how the album is mixed. Mm-hmm. How how much of an influence in the mixing do you have? I know you had Dave Friedman uh, mix it for you. Um, how how'd you pick him? And were you involved with that then? Yeah. So um, I think the vibe. Uh, the overall aesthetic was as much a product of how we recorded it in the first place. Um, Which I've learned over the years is like, I always had this conception of, Oh, you just record it as clean as possible. And then you add all the production Mm -hmm. afterward. And it's like, I've, I've found it for me, the easiest way to do things is to just decide on what you're going for first and try to achieve that in the recording process. So we recorded to tape, we used all sorts of weird old microphones and um, equipment. And then of course, David Fridman, um, the mixing engineer is like, I mean, one of my favorite producers slash engineers of the last mm-hmm. 30 years, he produced the frame, the, all the flaming lips records, um, Tame Impala, uh, Intervi- or, um, Inner Speaker um, and Lonerism and uh neon indian um era extrania there's just like a lot of records in my collection i don't have a lot of records from the last 20 years and Uh most of them are david fridman productions so yeah when his name got thrown out there by ato i was like oh of course that like be a dream come true um but he completed the process digitally just because we weren't able to like uh, facilitate driving our he didn't have the format of tape machine that we recorded on at his studio so we would have had to drive our tape machine out there for him to mix from the tape so we just decided to do that digitally and what with a guy like him is it just do your magic or were there did you give him any guidance oh of course i mean um the process was uh, extremely uh, regimented and um, it actually, it worked really beautifully. Um, typically, you know, he would select a song. Um, he, he blocked out, you know, uh, a day per song to work. Um, and uh, was like, okay, today I'm going to work on track X. And he mm-hmm. would send us a mix probably around 4 p.m. And then uh, we would have two hours to listen and compile notes. And he would do another mix before he left the studio, which we would be able to. So that would be like our uh, Mark II mix. We would be able to listen to overnight. And then any final edits we had, we would make in the morning. And then he would provide a final mix that morning before moving on to the next song. So it, it went very quickly and efficiently and we were able to get three rounds of mixes per tune, which helped us dial in. And as, as we went, he, he was more um, in tune with what I was going for as an aesthetic, as we went further into the mixing process as well. You needed less notes. as exactly. you went along. Yeah, I'd say so. And you mentioned um, being, the sound coming in part from how you recorded it that you uh, 
that you were largely analog, correct? Yeah, the initial phase of the recording, um, well, actually all up until mixing and mastering, it was a totally analog project. Uh, we did the band tracking on uh, like uh, the four piece, like basic instrumental tracks were done on a quarter inch eight track machine. And then um, we came to the point where we were going to bounce those tracks into the computer and finish the album with overdubs uh, digitally. But then a uh, 16 track tape machine became available. Ma- magically appeared. <laughs> yeah, it was actually a pair of uh, a pair of one inch 16 track tape machines became available. They used to belong to Jay Bennett of Wilco. Oh, and um, we purchased those. There was like a 15, they were identical machines, except one was a, a this is really technical. I don't know yeah, how technical no, I, your fans want me to get, but um, let's do it. Let's do it. There was a, a 15 inches per second speed and a 30 inches per second speed. The difference being that the 30 inches per second speed generally has a much cleaner sound. Um, mm-hmm. And you also eat the tape twice as fast. So yep. I was much more interested in the rock and roll 15 inches per second machine. Um, and so uh, we, we kept that one and we sold off the other machine and uh, we were able to do all the overdubs on the 16 track. And so like, I was super, super happy about that. I was like, I still listen to those tapes now. Just a lot of, a lot of what you hear on the record was baked into how he recorded it. And then David Fridman, um, being the master he is, was just able to create space yeah. um, using that raw material that's just elevated it so much. So, And, and you've been recording on analog f- for a while now. I, I imagine you, you've become more comfortable with it, but did that... Did that have to develop over time? Is it is it an easy medium? It doesn't seem like it's as easy as a medium to work with as say a digital. You know, um, do you have to t- figure out how to be not precious about things? Um, that's a great question. I actually, uh, so we did. I didn't have personal experience with the engineering side at all prior to working on this record. Um, when the pandemic hit. My guitarist left a Otari eight track at uh, the church and I built out our demo studio and I learned how to record to tape um, during that time period. And so I just like, it was just like a crash course in um, recording at all. I wouldn't call it engineering. I'm just, <laughs> I, I have no, phys- <laughs> like my knowledge of physics is completely none, but um just using your ears. Uh, the the other part of your question was, is it easier or harder? I just feel like it's a more direct way to get to the sound I'm going for using analog equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've just never enjoyed the aspect of just looking at a computer screen um, as much as I do working with my hands with yeah. mechanical. Pressing, pressing buttons and winding yeah. tapes. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it is, it does have it like there was an instance during the dub session where we erased um, a full day's overdub. Um, 
Un- unintentionally? Yeah, we unintentionally erased like 10 hours of work that we had done. Like all my vocal overdubs had been erased. And that was like, um, I made a little sticker. I actually took some tape tape, which is tape that's used to splice tape together. Uh-huh. Um, and I like made this little sign that said, are you sure? And I put it <laughs> like on the tape machine. Uh, so we we're just like twice as careful about when we were bouncing stuff that we weren't actually recording over anything. Um, so yeah. Uh, but I, I think in the end it helps me make more decisions at the front end of the process rather than waiting till the end of the process to make, you know, these grand yeah, that makes decisions sense. with regards to production. Yeah. 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 You're, you're making it as you're incorporating it from the beginning. Yeah. I right. think it's a great way to learn. I don't, um, I don't think it's the only way to make a good record. Obviously there's amazing records being recorded digitally every day. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, definitely. So, yeah. and I, but I just think it's a good way to learn for me. And, and did the, did the space itself, do you think affect the sound of the album, the, the recording at the, in, in the parsonage? Yeah. Uh, we didn't really do a whole lot to treat the space um, in the basement where we recorded everything. Uh-huh. It was, you know, just a wood paneled room with vinyl flooring. Um, and we put up some gobos to sort of uh, separate the sound as much as possible, but it was a nice warm sounding yeah. dead sounding room. And that was conducive to like what I was going for. So uh, I miss it already. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there's a pipe organ that, that you play occasionally on the album, right? Actually the, I, I want to dispel that. I okay. Uh, All right. So the the pipe organ was an influence because I did write some of the material on the pipe organ, which was in the sanctuary space. Um, but that's an incredibly difficult instrument to record um, mm-hmm. because it's so ambient, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, we it didn't end up making the record. Did, um, so, you, but you did try to record the. The church's pipe organ? I no, I didn't. Oh. Uh, we didn't actually try to track it at all for the record. We we used um, an analog synthesizer to sort of replicate that sound. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I want to ask about some of the guests that appear on the album, specifically uh, Derek Trucks, who mm-hmm. added adds a, just a ripping slide guitar to "Can't Stop the Rain." <laughs>
the process of recording that track, did you decide you needed to add some Derek trucks to it? Well, I had no idea that was even um, a possibility until we sent the track to, we sent the rough uh, mix of Can't Stop the Rain to my friend Jesse Louder, uh, mm-hmm. who produces um, uh, Derek and Susan's live material. And mm-hmm. uh, he just finished a movie about their uh, tribute to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. It's right. Uh, learning to live together. It's fantastic. I recommend it. But um, um, he heard the track and he's like, oh man, Derek would sound great on this. And I was like, oh, word. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no doubt. I think so too. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I and, agree. <laughs> and he like, uh, he sent Derek the track and he liked it enough to uh, uh, agree to record on it. And it was just, just one of those things in my life. Like, I still think about that. I'm like, I can't believe that happened. <laughs> so, so when you got Derek's stems in, did you ever like go into the empty church and just blast it through the, through the empty speak church? That, was, that that's what that I would have been. That would have been a great idea <laughs> that we didn't do that. Uh, he sounds great. Um, there's also some background singers on the, on the record. Who are they? Most important background element. What I, I would say would be uh, Emily Nichols, also known as Carlisle. Okay. who uh, sang the backgrounds on Can't Stop the Rain. And she also sang backgrounds on Problems and Bunny Love. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's just a dear friend. And um, her own solo project, Carlisle, is really amazing. You should check it out. I definitely um, She's also uh, the fifth member of the band when we play live. Oh, okay. So, um when we do have an opportunity to expand our instrumentation, she plays uh, Korg MS-20 monosynth and sings background. So cool. uh, she's a badass. Uh, we also had Allie Bradford, Tremaine Parker, and Brandon Lampkin, who are like a unit. Um, okay. That, that trio, they're just like amazing Chicago gospel singers. And uh, we did a dub session at Shirk Studios in Chicago, um, probably not too long before I spoke with you uh, okay. last, like in March of 2020 mm-hmm. or 21. And they just like nailed it. Um, it was pretty, pretty inspiring to watch. But yeah, they, um, they sound great, especially with your voice. They, it all mesh- meshes very well together. Yeah. And uh, I mean, like, especially on, um, say your prayers, you know, they, they brought their own mm-hmm. mastery to that. Yes. So grateful for yep. them. I want to talk a little bit too about the the 
the songs themselves and, and your songwriting process. Um, so when did you write these songs? How, how, how long have they been in your in, sort of kicking around in your mind? Um, so like, for instance, Almeida apartments, can't stop the rain and problems and sentimental garbage were all recorded, uh, written prior to the pandemic. And I probably demoed out like another 25 songs, um, that, um, I whittled down. It was just like, um, I have a half inch reel of, it's probably just like an hour and a half worth of material in addition to just stuff I did subsequently. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I, you know, a lot of things were edited, uh, during the pandemic or written fresh just in the midst of it. And were you inspired by the pandemic, by the isolation? Did that influence the the lyrics at all? Yeah. I mean, undoubtedly, yes. It's just, how could you not like, yeah. Let that influence your well, but you know, I'll say I, I say that though, but and and that's true. But your lyrics, especially on this record, are particularly biographical. It it, it seems at least mm-hmm. right. Um, um, and, and it it's you you do have a vulnerability with what you put out there. Um, and I I wonder if that comes naturally for you because not everybody does that. You know, mm-hmm. not everybody writes sort of in first person, but it does seem like. And obviously not always, you know, I know you're certainly an artist and you're going to embellish and things, but it definitely seems like there's some vivid imagery in, in some of your songs that seem like you're pulling from real life events. And, and, and I wonder, you know, does that come naturally to you? Yeah. I mean, that's the only way I know how to write. Um, I'm trying to get better at actually just, um, People like Randy Newman um, mm-hmm. are great at creating characters and yeah. you're always going to bring yourself into it. Um, but I guess the the most successful song writing I do is autobiographical. And if it's not directly related to an event, it's drawing from some sort of emotion or experience. And one of those emotional experiences that you did draw from was a, a breakup in it's fall of 2019 while you're out on tour. And you know the album doesn't. It's not a breakup album. I think in the in the conventional sense, um, there's not sort of heartbreak and sadness um, and regret. There's no. It doesn't come off as vindictive or anything. But but there is sort of like a clarity of it. Do you did you come? Were you approaching the the lyrics? Do you think with like a different sort of emotional angle or 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 a, a different sort of acceptance of the situation? Yeah, um, absolutely. I, um, I'm just getting, uh, I, I'm, well, I'm just progressing in yeah. life Living. and yeah. I'm grateful to say that like being sober through those experiences forced me to feel the emotions in a way that maybe I wouldn't have if I had you know, had alcohol to numb yes, those things. Uh, so like, uh, I needed to find other ways to 
mitigate my suffering. Um, and so like after a long period of just stewing in my own, um, malaise, I started to actually find habits that made me feel better. And that was conducive to the songwriting and the work I was doing. But sometimes I really felt like pulling teeth, you know? Mm -hmm. Did, do you think your songwriting has changed in, in respect to your, in, as a reflection of your sobriety? Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's not as fresh, like the, the actual, um, rock bottom six years ago, uh, is further away. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I was just actually on Frasco's podcast earlier today. Yeah. Oh, we we're talking about talking how, like, all the all the Andes and podcasting yeah, today. Dude, Andy, <laughs> Andy Andy's podcast. world. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and, and you and I need to have a I've got we had the doppelganger thing too with Andy Khan. There's another Andy Khan and the other Neil Francis. Oh my remember, god. Yeah. Do you remember so, that? <laughs> dude, we should all rumble. I know. Be we, fantastic. And then we'll do it on both podcasts now. I mean, sorry. But beautiful. Uh, so you you were saying you were on Andy's podcast today talking to him. Yeah, uh, we were just talking about the same sort of spread of issues. And yeah. Like um, how I get in my own way, you know, and I had to find ways to get over that. And you wrote a song called In Plain Sight, which is the title track, but it's not actually on the album, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you went full on and recorded it. It, 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 it actually... Mm -hmm was it so it's like a it's an it's a full-on outtake yeah it's a dope track i actually i have a it was supposed to be the last track on the record and then uh it was one of those things where like um there was sort of a there was a committee aspect to the sequence and mm -hmm. i'm extremely open to a uh, suggestion there and so when it was suggested to say your prayers be the, the, the closer, um, I was very open to that because I love that song too. Um, but I wanted In Plain Sight to remain as a title just because it spoke so much to the whole work uh, cohesively, like um, on, a, on a macro level, but also it's like a, a nod to uh, Houses of the Holy. Yeah. Zeppelin, how yeah, yeah. the track houses of the holy doesn't come till physical graffiti. So, right, right. so is that on? The, so, is in plain sight going to be on the next record? Oh hell yeah! <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, this is Zeppelin. That shit. This, this is a plan. Uh, and you've been you've been touring. Um, you're you're right now. You're in between uh, stops. Um, have you been playing the new songs live? How, how how's that been going? Oh man, uh, we've been kind of workshopping this stuff live since I talked to you probably in April okay. um, and slowly adding uh, material to the set until now. We, everything's on the table from the record, including uh, one of the three outtakes um, that haven't been released. Oh, very cool. So we recorded 12 and there's nine on the record. Uh, so very fine is one that we play live that we haven't released the recording of yet. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I was just talking about that too. It's like yeah. you'll see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. There's a probably you know, there's a reason why it's not included. There's a reason why you're it's held back, mm-hmm. right? Um and, and, and you know, we we talked a minute ago too about you you write these biographical songs. Um is it ever difficult for you in the live setting to go back to those experiences? Are there ever nights where you don't want to sort of sing that sing a lyric because it does sort of recall a, a painful memory or something? Oh man, it's always an advantage if I can get back into that experience. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I always feel like the audience wants to feel that. Yeah. You know. I think when I watch a show and I can see someone genuinely experiencing emotion, that's that's part of what I'm getting out of the whole experience, you know. Um, like losing some, losing yourself, and and being enveloped by somebody else's experience is like, yeah. If I can get there, I have um, with specific songs. You know, it's, sometimes I'm just like really thinking about that person or that event, and like yeah. it, it brings a lot to the table. So you use that to your advantage. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. I saw too the other night you you sat in with Talk, our buddies mm-hmm. Talk, who are yeah. friends of the podcast, um, oh, yeah. and, and and you did uh, thank you for letting me be myself again. I just want to suggest if you meet up with those guys again and get a chance, you could do maybe dog stool things. Oh, no. <laughs> do you think they They're know? Saying, it? Oh, dude, they know it. They've covered fish before. Oh, word. Yeah, you got to throw that out there, man. Oh, dude, I think that would make a lot of people happy. That would that would make a lot of jam base readers <laughs> and, and, and podcast listeners happy. I'm sure. Oh, yeah, dude. I mean, honestly, I'm so glad we did that, and I'm so glad that uh, the fish community is like digging what I'm doing because yeah. I know, like, I've gotten a lot a lot of love. We're getting a lot of love on the fish message boards. Um, we're getting played ahead of these huge fish shows. And so it's like, you know, bringing attention to our music. So I'm like really, really grateful for that. Terrific. You know? Definitely, man. Um, I'll let you get going. I do have one, one thing I want to ask though, uh, with Halloween right around the corner, you, I, I saw in the press materials that the, you thought the the hallway at the church was haunted. Mm-hmm. What what were what were the what brought why did you think it was haunted? I just I felt some ghosts, just, man. Yeah, yeah. For real. I was uh I don't know how else to explain it, but I wasn't the only one to think it was real. No but, kidding. Um it was in a specific place as I walked to the choir loft. Um they're the choir rehearsal space where mm-hmm. I practiced most of the time. Uh-huh. And it's just this landing on a staircase that gave me the willies. It was weird, man. Very cool. Well, spirits. Spirits, spirits of St. Peter's. It's a 150-year-old congregation in a uh, 70-year-old building. So it was like definitely so it some, had some ghosts. energy. Yeah, definitely. Well, there's great energy on the record in plain sight. It's on out on November 5th on ATO Records. Neil, thanks again for taking the time to talk with me, man. Stay safe out there on tour. Um, 
hopefully we'll get to do this in person sometime, man. Hell yeah, man. Uh, are you going to be at Huluween? Unfortunately, no. All right. Well, I'll see you soon. Definitely, man. All right. You All right, take Andy. care. All right, brother. Thanks, take man. care. See you, Appreciate man. you. Later. You too. Bye. episode of the jam Base podcast thanks as always to each and every one of you out there for listening thanks to neil for coming back to chat with me again if you haven't yet definitely check out neil francis's terrific new album in plain sight wherever you find good music thanks to jake alexander for help producing the episode if you like what you hear give us stars leave a review smash that subscribe button we'll be back next week so in the meantime be safe and go see live music